Part One, Chapter Three of An Outcast of the Islands by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Three. The opportunity and the temptation were too much for Willems, and under the pressure of sudden necessity, he abused that trust which was his pride, the perpetual sign of his cleverness, and a load too heavy for him to carry. A run of bad luck at cards, the failure of a small speculation undertaken on his own account, an unexpected demand for money from one or another of the D'Souza family, and almost before he was well aware of it, he was off the path of his peculiar honesty. It was such a faint and ill-defined track that it took him some time to find out how far he had strayed amongst the brambles of the dangerous wilderness he had been skirting for so many years without any other guide than his own convenience, and that doctrine of success which he had found for himself in the book of life, in those interesting chapters that the devil has been permitted to write in it to test the sharpness of men's eyesight and the steadfastness of their hearts. For one short, dark, and solitary moment he was dismayed, but he had that courage that will not scale heights, yet will wade bravely through the mud if there be no other road. He applied himself to the task of restitution, and devoted himself to the duty of not being found out. On his thirtieth birthday he had almost accomplished the task, and the duty had been faithfully and cleverly performed. He saw himself safe. Again he could look hopefully towards the goal of his legitimate ambition. Nobody would dare to suspect him, and in a few days there would be nothing to suspect. He was elated. He did not know that his prosperity had touched then its high water mark, and that the tide was already on the turn. Two days afterwards he knew. Mr. Vink, hearing the rattle of the door handle, jumped up from his desk where he had been tremulously listening to the loud voices in the private office, and buried his face in the big safe with nervous haste. For the last time Willems passed through the little green door leading to Hudig's sanctum, which, during the past half-hour, might have been taken from the fiendish noise within for the cavern of some wild beast. Willems' troubled eyes took in the quick impression of men and things as he came from the place of his humiliation. He saw the scared expression of the punka boy, the Chinamen tellers sitting on their heels with unmovable faces turned up blankly towards him while their arrested hands hovered over the little piles of bright gilders ranged on the floor. Mr. Vink's shoulder-blades with the fleshy rims of two red ears above. He saw the long avenue of gin-cases stretching from where he stood to the arched doorway beyond which he would be able to breathe, perhaps. A thin rope's end lay across his path, and he saw it distinctly, yet stumbled heavily over it as if it had been a bar of iron. Then he found himself in the street at last, but could not find air enough to fill his lungs. He walked towards his home, gasping. As the sound of Hudig's insults that lingered in his ears grew fainter by the lapse of time, the feeling of shame was replaced slowly by a passion of anger against himself, and still more against the stupid concourse of circumstances that had driven him into his idiotic indiscretion. Idiotic indiscretion. That is how he defined his guilt to himself. Could there be anything worse from the point of view of his undeniable cleverness? what a fatal aberration of an acute mind! He did not recognize himself there, 
He must have been mad, that's it, a sudden gust of madness. And now the work of long years was destroyed utterly. What would become of him? Before he could answer that question, he found himself in the garden before his house, Hudig's wedding gift. He looked at it with a vague surprise to find it there. His past was so utterly gone from him that the dwelling which belonged to it appeared to him incongruous standing there intact, neat, and cheerful in the sunshine of the hot afternoon. The house was a pretty little structure, all doors and windows, surrounded on all sides by the deep veranda supported on slender columns clothed in the green foliage of creepers which also fringed the overhanging eaves of the high-pitched roof. Slowly Willems mounted the dozen steps that led to the veranda. He paused at every step. He must tell his wife. He felt frightened at the prospect, and his alarm dismayed him. Frightened to face her? Nothing could give him a better measure of the greatness of the change around him and in him. Another man and another life with the faith in himself gone. He could not be worth much if he was afraid to face that woman. He dared not enter the house through the open door of the dining-room, but stood irresolute by the little work-table where trailed a white piece of calico with a needle stuck in it as if the work had been left hurriedly. The pink-crested cockatoo started on his appearance into clumsy activity and began to climb laboriously up and down his perch, calling Joanna with indistinct loudness and a persistent screech that prolonged the last syllable of the name as if in a peal of insane laughter. The screen in the doorway moved gently once or twice in the breeze, and each time Willems started slightly, expecting his wife, but he never lifted his eyes, although straining his ears for the sound of her footsteps. Gradually he lost himself in his thoughts, in the endless speculation as to the manner in which she would receive his news and his orders. In this preoccupation he almost forgot the fear of her presence. No doubt she will cry, she will lament, she will be helpless and frightened and passive as ever, and he would have to drag that limp weight on and on through the darkness of a spoiled life. Horrible! Of course he could not abandon her and the child to certain misery or possible starvation. The wife and the child of Willems. Willems, the successful, the smart. Willems, the cock. Path. And what was Willems now? Willems, the... He strangled the half-born thought and cleared his throat to stifle a groan. Ah, won't they talk tonight in the billiard-room? His world where he had been first all those men to whom he had been so superciliously condescending. Won't they talk with surprise and affected regret, and grave faces and wise nods? Some of them owed him money, but he never pressed anybody. Not he. Willems, the prince of good fellows, they called him. And now they will rejoice, no doubt, at his downfall. A crowd of imbeciles! In his abasement he was yet aware of his superiority over those fellows, who were merely honest or simply not found out yet. A crowd of imbeciles. He shook his fist at the evoked image of his friends, and the startled parrot fluttered its wings and shrieked in desperate fright. In a short glance upwards Willems saw his wife come round the corner of the house. He lowered his eyelids quickly, and waited silently till she came near and stood on the other side of the little table. He would not look at her face, but he could see the red dressing-gown he knew so well. 
she trailed through life in that red dressing-gown with its row of dirty blue bows down the front stained and hooked on awry a torn flounce at the bottom following her like a snake as she moved languidly about with her hair negligently caught up and a tangled wisp straggling untidily down her back his gaze travelled upwards from bow to bow noticing those that hung only by a thread but it did not go beyond her chin he looked at her lean throat at the obtrusive collarbone visible in the disarray of the upper part of her attire he saw the thin arm and the bony hand clasping the child she carried and he felt an immense distaste for those encumbrances of his life he waited for her to say something but as he felt her eyes rest on him in unbroken silence he sighed and began to speak it was a hard task he spoke slowly lingering amongst the memories of this early life in his reluctance to confess that this was the end of it and the beginning of a less splendid existence in his conviction of having made her happiness in the full satisfaction of all material wants he never doubted for a moment that she was ready to keep him company on no matter how hard and stony a road he was not elated by this certitude he had married her to please hudig and the greatness of his sacrifice ought to have made her happy without any further exertion on his part she had years of glory as willem's wife and years of comfort of loyal care and of such tenderness as she deserved he had guarded her carefully from any bodily hurt and of any other suffering he had no conception the assertion of his superiority was only another benefit conferred on her all this was a matter of course but he told her all this so as to bring vividly before her the greatness of her loss she was so dull of understanding that she would not grasp it else and now it was at an end they would have to go leave this house leave this island go far away where he was unknown to the english straight settlement perhaps he would find an opening there for his abilities and juster men to deal with than old hudig he laughed bitterly you have the money i left at home this morning joanna he asked we will want it all now as he spoke these words he thought he was a fine fellow nothing knew that still he surpassed there his own expectations hang it all there are sacred things in life after all the marriage tie was one of them and he was not the man to break it the solidity of his principles caused him great satisfaction but he did not care to look at his wife for all that he waited for her to speak then he would have to console her tell her not to be a crying fool to get ready to go go where how when he shook his head they must leave at once that was the principal thing he felt a sudden need to hurry up his departure well joanna he said a little impatiently don't stand there in a trance do you hear we must he looked up at his wife and whatever he was going to add remained unspoken she was staring at him with her big slanting eyes that seemed to him twice their natural size the child its dirty little face pressed to its mother's shoulder was sleeping peacefully the deep silence of the house was not broken but rather accentuated by the low mutter of the cockatoo now very still on its perch as willems was looking at joanna her upper lip was drawn up on one side giving to her melancholy face a vicious expression altogether new to his experience 
He stepped back in his surprise. "'Oh, you great man!' she said distinctly, but in a voice that was hardly above a whisper. Those words, and still more her tone, stunned him as if somebody had fired a gun close to his ear. He stared back at her stupidly. "'Oh, you great man!' she repeated slowly, glancing right and left as if meditating a sudden escape. "'And you think that I am going to starve with you? You are nobody now. You think my mamma and Leonard would let me go away? And with you? With you?' she repeated scornfully, raising her voice which woke up the child and caused it to whimper feebly. "'Joanna!' exclaimed Willems. "'Do not speak to me. I have heard what I have waited for all these years. You are less than dirt, you that have wiped your feet on me. I have waited for this. I am not afraid now. I do not want you. Do not come near me.' "'Ah!' she screamed shrilly, as he held out his hand in entreating gesture. "'Ah! Keep off me! Keep off me! Keep off!' She backed away, looking at him with eyes both angry and frightened. Willems stared motionless, in dumb amazement at the mystery of anger and revolt in the head of his wife. Why? What had he ever done to her? This was the day of injustice indeed. First Hudik, and now his wife. He felt a terror at this hate that had lived stealthily so near him for years. He tried to speak, but she shrieked again, and it was like a needle through his heart. Again he raised his hand. "'Help!' cried Mrs. Willems in a piercing voice. "'Help!' "'Be quiet, you fool!' shouted Willems, trying to drown the noise of his wife and child in his own angry accents, and rattling violently the little zinc table in his exasperation. From under the house, where there were bathrooms and a tool-closet, appeared Leonard, a rusty iron bar in his hand. He called threateningly from the bottom of the stairs. "'Do not hurt her, Mr. Willems. You are a savage, not at all like we, whites.' "'You too,' said the bewildered Willems. "'I haven't touched her. Is this a madhouse?' He moved towards the stairs, and Leonard dropped the bar with a clang and made for the gate of the compound. Willems turned back to his wife. "'So you expected this,' he said. "'It is a conspiracy. Who's that sobbing and groaning in the room? Some more of your precious family, eh?' She was more calm now, and putting hastily the crying child in the big chair, walked towards him with sudden fearlessness. "'My mother,' she said, "'my mother who came to defend me from you, man from nowhere, a vagabond.' "'You did not call me a vagabond when you hung round my neck before we were married,' said Willems contemptuously. "'You took good care that I should not hang round your neck after we were,' she answered, clenching her hands and putting her face close to his. "'You boasted while I suffered and said nothing. What has become of your greatness?' of our greatness you were always speaking about. Now I am going to live on the charity of your master. Yes, that is true. He sent Leonard to tell me so, and you will go and boast somewhere else, and starve. So, ah, I can breathe now. This house is mine. Enough, said Willem slowly, with an arresting gesture. She leaped back the fright again in her eyes, snatched up the child, pressed it to her breast, and falling into a chair drummed insanely with her heels on the resounding floor of the veranda. "'I shall go,' said Willem steadily. "'I thank you. For the first time in your life you make me happy. You were a stone round my neck, you understand. I did not mean to tell you that as long as you lived, but you made me 
now. Before I pass this gate, you shall be gone from my mind. You made it very easy. I thank you. He turned and went down the steps without giving her a glance, while she sat upright and quiet with wide-open eyes, the child crying querulously in her arms. At the gate he came suddenly upon Leonard, who had been dodging about there and failed to get out of the way in time. "'Do not be brutal, Mr. Willems,' said Leonard hurriedly. "'It is unbecoming between white men with all those natives looking on.' Leonard's legs trembled very much, and his voice wavered between high and low tones without any attempt at control on his part. "'Restrain your improper violence,' he went on mumbling rapidly. "'I am a respectable man of very good family. Well, you... it is regrettable. They all say so.' "'What?' thundered Willems. He felt a sudden impulse of mad anger and before he knew what had happened he was looking at Leonard de Souza rolling in the dust at his feet. He stepped over his prostrate brother-in-law and tore blindly down the street, everybody making way for the frantic white man. When he came to himself he was beyond the outskirts of the town, stumbling on the hard and cracked earth of reaped rice-fields. How did he get there? It was dark. He must get back. As he walked towards the town slowly, his mind reviewed the events of the day, and he felt a sense of bitter loneliness. His wife had turned him out of his own house. He had assaulted brutally his brother-in-law, a member of the D'Souza family, of that band of his worshippers. He did. Well, no, it was some other man. Another man was coming back. A man without a past, without a future, yet full of pain and shame and anger. He stopped and looked round. A dog or two glided across the empty street and rushed past him with a frightened snarl. He was now in the midst of the melee quarter whose bamboo houses, hidden in their verdure of their little gardens, were dark and silent. Men, women, and children slept in there. Human beings. Would he ever sleep? And where? He felt as if he was the outcast of all mankind, and as he looked hopelessly round before resuming his weary march, it seemed to him that the world was bigger, the night more vast and more black. But he went on doggedly with his head down, as if pushing his way through some thick brambles. Then suddenly he felt planks under his feet, and looking up saw the red light at the end of the jetty. He walked quite to the end and stood leaning against the post under the lamp, looking at the roadstead where two vessels at anchor swayed their slender rigging amongst the stars the end of the jetty, and here in one step more the end of life, the end of everything. Better so. What else could he do? Nothing ever comes back. He saw it clearly. The respect and admiration of them all, the old habits and old affections finished abruptly in the clear perception of the cause of his disgrace. He saw all this, and for a time he came out of himself, out of his selfishness, out of the constant preoccupation of his interests and his desires, out of the temple of self and the concentration of personal thought. His thoughts now wandered home. Standing in the tepid stillness of a starry tropical night, he felt the breath of the bitter east wind, he saw the high and narrow fronts of tall houses under the gloom of a clouded sky, and on muddy keys he saw the shabby high-shouldered figure the patient faded face of the weary man earning bread for the children that waited for him in a dingy home. It was miserable, 
miserable. But it would never come back. What was there in common between those things and Willems the clever, Willems the successful? He had cut himself adrift from that home many years ago. Better for him then. Better for them now. All this was gone, never to come back again, and suddenly he shivered, seeing himself alone in the presence of unknown and terrible dangers. For the first time in his life he felt afraid of the future, because he had lost his faith, the faith in his own success, and he had destroyed it foolishly with his own hands. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com